It's so glossy, overproduced, and swank, I didn't find the cast all that sterling. That's from Peter Rayner of Film Week, a review of Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, one of five new movies we're doing this week in Cinema. That's right, five Ooh. new movies, Cody. And Glass Onion, how about this? It's going to be on Netflix at the end of December, but they know people still want to see some movies in theaters, people like me, so especially the filmmakers want it done that way, Ryan Johnson. So one week only for Glass Onion, which is the Knives Out sequel, made almost $10 million. Like it wasn't in a lot of theaters. One week only made really good business, so maybe we'll see more films from Netflix. You know what? We'll give you one week in theaters, then we'll go streaming later in the month. So that's good news for Glass Onion and Eyes Out Mystery. Also, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. That'll be on Netflix this Friday. I got the screener. Early review of that film, as you'll all be checking that out this Friday, especially if you've got kids and you like Pinocchio. In addition to that, Bones and All. I'll go ahead and tell you right now, it's one of my favorite movies of the year. Cannibals in Love. This movie is darkly, darkly funny. It's demented. It's romantic. It's beautifully shot. I cannot wait to talk about cannibalism with Cody. Tar, which just won the New York Film Critics Best Picture Award. Ready for this one? I think it's wildly overrated, and I'll tell you why. Even though Kate Blanchett, right now, the favorite to win Best Actress. She might win the Oscar, and I'm like, are you kidding? That is 155 minutes of classical music. I cannot imagine my boy Cody enjoying that film. And also Till, which our man Ty Byrne nailed it. The quintessential good-for-you movie. It is a very sobering story about the death, the murder of Emmett Till and how his mother sought justice. Those are the five new movies we're doing this week. And our wild card is unbelievable. And it's also old because it's about an old movie and an old book and an old thing. It's called Madam, and it is the life of Polly Adler. We have the author, Polly Applegate. This is Cinephile, where authors come to talk about their books. This book came out a year ago, and it's about a woman who ran the first ever whorehouse in New York City. Unbelievable subject matter. You're going to love Debbie. She's so funny. Pulitzer Prize, by the way. She's super smart. She knows her stuff and is right up our alley here in Cinephile. The old, I could tell you about Harlan County, USA. So just for the sake of doing it, I'll do it in 30 seconds. Uh, Richard Kine's a huge fan of Barbara Koppel. We did it last week on the podcast, but it was so long. Cody goes, let's just cut it. I'm like, okay, fair enough. But in the interest of appeasing Carl, because we like to go new old wildcard, I'll be real quick. It's very dated. It's a very important documentary. If you like stories about coal miners and strikes and unions, you'll check it out. But if you watch it through today's eyes, it's very dated. It's kind of a tough watch. Tons of hillbilly music. There's your old movie, Harlan County, USA. An important documentary, but not an enjoyable one. Before we get into the new movies... Guys, I mentioned, yeah, we we got out of the way just for Carl. Five new movies I mentioned. I've actually seen eight films. So next week, I'll already go ahead and tease The Whale, Darren Aronofsky's new film starring Brendan Fraser. Just watched it yesterday. Where'd you see it? Where'd you see it? I got the screener sent to me. Okay, I was like, I want to watch that. So it's not available for the the common folk? uh, It is opening in theaters, limited release this Friday. But a great message I got from a guy named Kevo who said, I really like the fact Chris Cody clarified what you said because you're you're talking about getting all these screeners. And then he was like, how do you get this? Like, oh, 150 bucks. He's like, bro, I was willing to spend 150 bucks tomorrow. (laughs) And I'm like, no, you have to get vetted. Like, you have to have like a friend. Oh, okay, okay. So Ben Lyons hooks you up and then you pay the 150. Otherwise, every person listening is like, I'll pay the 150 tomorrow. I'll go, I'll get a screeners of the whale. So the real question is, how much do I have to pay Ben Lyons? To, so, like, how much is it total? It's it's 150 and then 500 for Ben Lyons. So for say, 650, yeah. for 650, you can get in. Correct. You just got to grease the wheels with Ben. But the whale will be limited release this Friday. Um, I can't wait to talk about it. We're going to do it next week instead of file. Brendan Fraser, comeback performance. Also, I saw early review, Puss in Boots. 
All right, that's not coming out to December 21st. Watch that with my kids on Saturday. And the new film, Living, from Bill Nighy, which is a remake of one of my favorite films, Akira Kurosawa's Ikiru. So five new movies this week, three new movies next week. And most importantly, this weekend, I'll be with Cody. Moss yes. Miami. I'll be in my... I'm flying down Friday, baby. We're getting after it. Moss Miami. Tickets are not yet sold out. But by mm-hmm. the time you listen to this, they may be sold out. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay, if you if you want to go, check... Uh, MossLebitard.com. Tickets are going. There were thousands available, and now we're down to hundreds, I believe, as of last Friday. Haven't checked. So just, yeah, go check it out. If you miss out, we'll be putting content out. You'll, you'll see some stuff on social media. But, uh, yeah, it's going to be the party of the century, some are calling it. I can't wait. Party of the century. I will be your MC. I talked to my man Eric Garcia, who is giving me some of the run of the show. I mean, Michael Scotchy. Yes. Uh, Mike Ryan DJing. I mean, that's all I got to say. Yeah. I, that, I, I don't want to give away everything, but Mike Ryan DJing, I can confirm. There's going to be a lot of art involved. There's auctions. It's going to be awesome. So make sure you join us in Miami. There's some cool bands coming too, but the show listeners is the performance I'm waiting for. The one surprise is this. Originally, I was told 6 p.m. till midnight. When I talked to my man Garcia, he was like, well, I really just need you at 8 p.m., which is when the, you know, the show begins, and we're going till 1. He goes, to be honest with you, pretty early. Like I was like, we should be going till 3 a.m. 1 a.m. for Miami, kind of light on a Saturday. So maybe the after party is going somewhere else. But I don't know about you, Cody. I was like, wait, 1 a.m. to me sounds like reasonable. Like, you know, he's going to be going to go to 3. Like, Jesus. I mean, I don't want to speak for the, like for Eric and stuff. Like, it's one of those things. In the in the 8 to like 11, there's some actual, like once it gets past 1130, people are just like, people start leaving. Correct. You, like, you know what I mean? You can slip out the back door. There's not really any big events going on after midnight, like, right. that you're going to need to announce. So it's like one of yeah. those things where technically it goes <laughs> Till one, but you know, after your last thing at like eleven, you can slide out the door if you want. <laughs> I'm gonna go have some Latin jazz. Somebody, somebody messaged me the other day. They go, "Hey, I heard your Louis Armstrong review. If you're coming to Miami, there's a great Latin jazz club." I'm like, "All right, so Saturday night, I may be slipping out for some Latin jazz. <laughs> if anybody wants to join me, I'll be in Little Havana checking out some Latin jazz." Is that yes. ever? That's it. He was at Miami. I mean, I was checking out Latin jazz. <laughs> I have to tell one personal anecdote. I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to do this, but I just, I'm so both entertained and appalled by it. I have to tell you about it and all the our wonderful listeners. So our eldest son, Yusuf, I have a few challenges with him, him and his mom fighting this and that, you know, there's arguments, this and that in the house. So how old is he again? He's 14. So it's at that age okay. now, that rebellious teenage son, a mom overbearing yeah. in his view. So somebody had said to me, they go, we've talked about this before, Cody and I, but therapy, just trying out therapists, this and that. So, yeah. Okay. You know, maybe it's an idea, a family therapist to try to help ease some of the tension, right? Yeah. I just want to go tonight, hang out with Ken Danico, talk devil's flyers, and I'm going to get a text from my wife. Yusuf did this, he did this. It causes stress. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm just cold calling. I'm looking at places here. I, I got hold of one guy and uh, we speak for a little bit and he's like, well, you know, it costs this way. It's, it's like 200 bucks an hour. I'm like, ah, you know, I care about my family, but it's a little much. <laughs> so I, like, I, I gotta be honest, it's a little expensive than I thought, but I'll keep looking. I have, I have coverage. Maybe it's under my coverage. A few days later, I get a message from this guy and he goes, hey, I just want, <laughs> I can't believe you did this. He goes, I just wanted to follow up and see if you were able to find someone. I'm really helpful with the ego. Also, are you the same Adnan from television? Because, oh God. Because my nephew is going to Penn State and he's a, Terrific kid, and he'd love to do an internship. He's really into broadcasting. Let me know. I'm like, Cody, how unethical is that? Like, imagine this if you is had, not like, how you a therapist is like. Hey, you scratch it. my back, I'll scratch yours. Hey, <laughs> you you get my kid into Penn State, and I will tell your wife whatever she wants to hear. That's basically what this guy's like. What is this? I couldn't believe it. I was like, I feel like I should report this guy. Imagine if I had a drug problem, and I'm I'm looking up, you know, uh, cocaine addicts anonymus, and then I call the guy. And say, are you the same Adnan Burke? I'm like, uh, um, yeah. He's like, you know, I, I, I'll help you with your cocaine problem, but help me out with tickets. Like, is that is that possible? Like, I just want to go to the Yankee game sometime. 
Oh, I believe it. That is so like. There's so many <laughs> angles there of why he shouldn't have done that. Like I didn't respond. My wife goes, just don't respond. Like, I have to respond. She goes, why? I go, I have this compulsion. Every time someone texts me, emails me, I always respond. And she goes, don't respond. The guy, that's a that's a dick move by this guy. So I gave it like four days, and I go, hey, uh, that is me. Um, unfortunately, I don't really control that department. And, uh, you know, thanks for your offer of help. And then he was like, okay, all good. Blah, blah, blah. So, so I, I had to respond, but I was, for me, kind of kind of cruel. So he was like, all right, Oof. got the hit. Like, I felt That's a good. You honestly, good thing you, like, saw that side of this guy before you, like, yes. decided to, like, jeez. <laughs> you imagine family therapy? He's like, hey, seriously, what do you think about the Giants? Like, I think I should lay some money on the Giants this weekend. I'm like, I'm not really sure what we're doing here right now. I'm trying to help out my family. After you're done pouring out your heart, hear my son. He's really good. He's got a great tra- – he's great at transitions. Like he, he can- Do you think Joe Davis is good? you got to listen to my son, Joe. This guy's fantastic. <laughs> no, no, no. That's really – I feel bad about your son and your, your wife. They're going to get it together. He'll grow out of it. But seriously, look at my son over here. Check out this reel. <laughs> You should have this call he had. This is incredible. Give me two minutes. Come on. I'm While you and your this. wife think about what you've done to your son, let's hit play and watch this reel. It'll be a nice little. <laughs> so ridiculous. All right. Let's talk some movies. I had to get that out of the way. All right. Um, I know you guys all love your whodunits, don't you? Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. Famed Southern detective Benoit Blanc travels to Greece for his latest case. It's written and directed by Ryan Johnson. My buddy Rick Passmore. A lot of people out there love these kinds of films. But I'm with Claire Atkins, who wasn't totally enamored of the first one. As she said, I wasn't crazy about Knives Out. I thought it was all right. I mean, I, I get the appeal of it. But I, I'm, I'm with Claire on this one. I definitely wasn't overjoyed by it. But it, it has that familiar construct of Daniel Craig showing up with this funny redneck accent and you got a bunch of stars. You want stars? We got stars. Edward Norton's in this movie. Dave Bautista's in the movie. Catherine Hahn, Janelle Monet, Kate Hudson's back. Leslie Odom Jr., Madeline Klein. Hello. So it's Hugh Grant shows up. My man Ethan Hawke out of nowhere. I'm like, wow, Ethan Hawke is in this movie. I'm like, they just told Ethan Hawke, we'll give you $1,000. You just show up for one day. Man, no problem. Whatever I want. But I, I find with these kinds of movies, they're, they're more style than actual substance, right? Here's a bunch of stars. Here's a very complicated, convoluted plot. And I suppose if you really like your murder mysteries and you enjoyed the first one, this movie will be for you. But I personally didn't think it was as strong as the first one. And I wasn't crazy about the first one anyway. So that's my very brief review. Glass Onion, a nice story. I also thought it was very predictable, Cody, who the villain was. I will not give it away. But anytime you have a murder mystery, I got to think you got to stick the landing. And when you're kind of guessing what's happening and you do guess it, to me, it's a bit of a letdown. I don't know. Maybe you're the other way. Maybe you go, hey, I guessed it. No, I really like this movie more because I did guess it right. No, no, no. I'm with you. I definitely, if I, if I guess it, that makes me think lesser of the movie. Yeah. Like that's the way, that's the way I look at it. But I don't like movies with colons in the title. It's fine in a book. <laughs> if you're writing a book, give me something, colon, something. Good with it. Not in movies. <laughs> That's it. That's We're out on colons. Yeah. <laughs> colon cancer. Colons and titles. We're out at uh, mm-hmm. Colin Powell. I guess he's all right, I guess. Glass yeah. Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. Ryan Johnson, written and directed. Lots of stars. I, again, if you're into that kind of thing, I'm sure you'll love it. The reviews have been great. Fans have loved it. I myself found it a little bit disappointing. Kyle Smith of the Wall Street Journal. The actors evidently consider this type of movie to be a frolic, and their sense of fun is contagious. And Shirley Lee of the Atlantic. Glass Onion wisely avoids trying to top its predecessor or sentimentality. Rather, the film pushes deeper 
return to playfulness while still maintaining a pointed streak. I, I don't see the pointed streak at all. Let's talk about Pinocchio, though. I mean, this is, again, the Critics' Choice, they love bribing people. I got this exquisite box set to Pinocchio. It just says GDT, Guillermo del Toro, Pinocchio. I opened up this thing. I got the DVD. I got two CDs because they're trying to get Best Original Song nominations. I have the, the screenplay. And then I haven't even opened it yet because it's, it's, it's in plastic. Maybe I can resell this thing. It's like, just a big Pinocchio book. And I'm like, wow, you're just really trying to bribe me to really love this film and say it should be the best animated film winner. And I'm not above a bribe, to be clear. If you want to send me a bunch of stuff, it's fine. The coolest part of this was my son, Adin, who's 11. He looks at the book and goes, what is this? I go, it's called a screenplay. He's like, really? So at one point, he started watching the movie while reading the screenplay. I'm like, well, this is actually quite educational. Yeah, buddy. He's like, look, you read the dialogue, look up, you can watch it. So I'm like, I've never seen a child. I never had that option as a child. Yeah. I didn't have like a taxi driver screenplay while I was watching it. I'm like, well, it's kind of cool to watch me that way. Here's the thing about Pinocchio. Cody, are you into the story of Pinocchio? Do you, do you find this interesting? The guy lies, his nose grows bigger. Yeah, he... I mean, I'm, I'm familiar. It, I think both this the, are... Wait, let, let me just, just for clarifying, because yeah. there's a lot of remakes going on. Mm. This is the one with Tom Hanks' Geppetto? No, I was about to say, because it's an excellent clarification by you. The Tom Hanks' Geppetto we crushed. That was terrible. Robert Zemeckis. This is a new one. This is stop okay. motion animation. Okay. okay so this okay. is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, stop motion animation. A little animation. look at me, Louie, by the way. Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Hey, yes. hey Guillermo. That's an excellent point, which goes back to, by the way, as an aside, The Fablemans, which is crushing news. It was a really good point by Chris. I, the more I thought about it, he said they should have just called it The Spielbergs because everyone would know what that is. Like, oh, it's Steven Spielberg's life. Instead, they call it The Fablemans. Mm -mm. Guess what, folks? This movie's a turkey. I mean, it, it costs $40 million to make. They put it in a few theaters at first. It's called a slow build, and then you go to a bigger release. Now, you don't need to do this with Black Panther. You put that in 4,000 theaters, the movie makes $350 million. All good. Yeah. These smaller, more artistic films, and I'll get to Tar and Till, which I'm reviewing this week. The Fablemans, they put it like in 10 theaters, 20 theaters. And then Thanksgiving weekend, they go, let's go 600 theaters and see. 600 theaters, and nobody saw it. They all watched the Cowboys wow. game. This movie opened at $2.2 million. It, like, that is brutal. Spielberg, the lowest grossing film of his career, I believe is the Sugarland Express, which is 1974, $12 million. He now makes the film about his life, and you're going to get like $8 million total. Like, well, what a nobody, shock. I'm Spielberg. telling you, people don't know it's about his life. Like, unless you're listening to this podcast, like, yeah. he's got to, like, it, it, it needs to be, like, advertised more as that. It's just his late, I don't know. I just. Yeah. It's a but bad they, job by them. We can already put the autopsy on it. Like, this film is going to bomb. It, it, it was made for $40 million. I'm telling you right now, it's not going to make more than 15 tops. Even once it gets all the Oscar nominations and buzz, should they have promoted it more with Seth Rogen's name? Should they have had Paul Dano and Michelle Williams out there more? Or is it just like Chris said, a bad title? Who knows? <laughs> but the bottom line is this. Del Toro's definitely feeling himself. It's not Pinocchio. It's Guillermo Del Toro's Pinocchio. I'm like, okay. And if you know Del Toro's work, he's obviously a visionary director. The Shape of Water is a great, great film. I love the fact that one best picture. Although I know Mike Gullick says that's the movie, but The Fish Man, I'm like, yeah, I think it's a great movie. But I know it's not everyone's taste. This, though, is a story which you can tell from Del Toro's heart. Has some shades of Pan's Labyrinth as well. A father's wish magically brings a wooden boy to life in Italy, giving him a chance to care for the child. He uh, co-directed it and he co-wrote it. It is based on Carlo Cotlodi, who based in the book Pinocchio. Um, Ewan McGregor plays the cricket. Always love a good cricket showing up in these movies. And Ron Perlman shows up as well. Here's the problem with Pinocchio. If you're going to make another Pinocchio, and Chris already alluded to the fact we just had another Pinocchio, the Geppetto there with Tom Hanks, what's different about it? And there's no doubt that the stop-motion animation is really well-crafted, and there's you know great care and production design involved. But the story itself remains what it was. And what he's updating it with, I don't think necessarily fits for younger children. It's more for like older children. It's a lot about fascism. Like he's setting the story within the fascism of, of, of 
the war and, you know, Pinocchio goes to war at one point. I'm like, okay, you're trying to meld like childlike themes with more serious adult themes. So maybe it's a film targeted more towards adults with a childlike fascination with Pinocchio or like adolescence. But to me, it was kind of an uneasy mix of trying to balance those two. I think either you just go kid-friendly Pinocchio or you go like hardcore film of violence and fascism in Pinocchio. Yeah. But he's trying to kind of have it both ways and I thought it was an uneasy mix while watching it. Again, I appreciate the animation, the craft involved and there's certainly some good moments. I mean, the scene where Pinocchio is trying to, he's just trying to get a little warm so he like has his feet in the fire. He literally puts his feet to the fire. Feet are on fire. I'm like, oh my God, you're made of wood. What are you doing? Like there's, there's some funny moments like that but again, considering the fact it's Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, I was a little disappointed. I'm giving this one two and a half Maple Leafs. There's a couple of reviews. John DeFore of Hollywood Reporter. A well-intentioned work that largely falls flat. It arrives as just another widget in Disney's remake of all agenda. I mean, that is a good blurb that Cody found. One whose pedigree offered the hope of something better. Exactly. If you hear Del Toro, you go, oh, dude, that guy's won Oscars. Mexican director. He brings it. Like, that's it? Like, Cool stop-motion animation. <laughs> Geppetto, here we go again. John DeFore of Hollywood Reporter. Peter Travers, even more succinct of ABC News. I've criticized him before as a blurb whore, but this is pretty funny. Hi, diddle dee dee. It didn't work for me. <laughs> Peter Travers getting it done. Hi, diddle dee. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Brian Lowry of CNN.com. Mostly Pinocchio itself washes ashore in a kind of no-man's land, too uninspired to bring anything fresh to the material, dutifully playing like a pallid redo of the 1940 Oof. classic. I mean, that is just... Normally, you'll find me a blurb that's positive, one negative. We just went three <laughs> negative on Pinocchio. Like, I could tell I could tell you didn't see it, either you didn't want to see it, or you thought it was a Tom Hanks version. You go, I'm going to crap on this one. Well, there are just... You can always get a vibe of a movie when you go on the Rotten Tomatoes. It was like, I had to like... You had to search for the good one. There were a lot of bad ones. Like, it was, it was mostly bad reviews. All right, so Glass Onion, I'm giving that one two Maple Leafs. I'm giving Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio two and a half. Let's get to the one which I'm calling one of the best films of the year. We're talking cannibals, folks. Bones and all. The synopsis, Marin, a young woman, learns how to survive on the margins of society. It's directed by Luca Guadagnino. If you know him, he likes his horror movies with Suspiria. He also made Call Me By Your Name, which was that very artful, dramatic film. Timothee Chalamet's breakout, him, and now the cannibal, Army Hammer. Think about that. This director made a film, which is a love story about two men. One of whom, Timothee Chalamet, who still looks like a prepubescent. And then you had Army Hammer. And now he made a film about cannibals. That's right. Not involving Army Hammer, who apparently is a real-life cannibal, who has texted women, I am a cannibal, but with the other guy, Chalamet. And I'll say this about Chalamet. <clears throat> I've never totally understood his appeal. Like, when I see him again, he looks, like a, he looks like a little boy. Like, he's a 12-year-old boy with a big moppish head. He's unbelievably skinny. Maybe I'm just, I'm just jealous how thin he is, but I just never really understood, you know, why people go crazy for this guy. But now I get it. Now, at Bones and all, I think he gives a fabulous performance, and here's why. Taylor Russell plays Marin. Early on, you see her being raised by her father. She's at a party. She's kind of like canoodling with another girl. And what she does, <laughs> takes a big chomp out of her finger. And, and this isn't just like a delicate move. She's like just biting her finger, starts sucking it. goes like, ah, ah. The woman starts freaking out. I'm like, oh, my God. She runs home to her dad. She's like, dad, I did it. I, I, I bit her hand. He's like, oh, my God, we got to get out of here again. Like, you did this again? So already I'm laughing because I have a demented sense of humor. Like, this is like, you know, when your child has a yeah. tantrum at Chuck E. Cheese. Like, you did it again? Like, I told you not to have a tantrum. Like, God, we got to go now. The parents can be over here. Except in this case, she just bit and ate the finger of one of her friends. He's like, we got to get out of here. So they, they rustle up middle of the night. He ends up leaving her a cassette tape in which he's playing back. And it's, it's a little bit of excess exposition, but it's explained to us their journey. And he says, you know what? I can't look after you anymore. This has happened too many times. You know, I knew who you were as a child. 
you know, I think you got it from your mom and, you know, I just, I can't help you anymore. Like this. And so you're left to wonder how many people has she killed? How many people has she eaten? Like at what point is a father going, I protected my cannibalistic daughter. Now I'm out. So she begins her road journey and that journey ends up tipping off with the incredibly funny Mark Rylance. Mark Rylance is an Academy Award winner. Like, this guy is a British actor of well-known repute. He was excellent in the film The Outfit earlier this year. He won for A Bridge of Spies. And he shows up playing this guy named Sully. He's got a fedora, kind of goofily dressed. Uh, he's got a really funny accent. And he's like, I, I could smell you from over there. It's like, why? He's like, yeah, I, like, you and I are the same. I'm like, oh, my God, he's also a cannibal. He's like, yeah, he's like, hey, why don't you come up to my place? I'm like, all right. So he invites this young, you know, Pretty teenage girl goes in there and she's not sure she's looking around. And I, lo- like, I wish I could have seen this in the theater. I would have just lost my mind laughing so hard. You look over, <clears throat> there's a dead naked woman. Mark Rylance is just face down, just eating her ass. And, and he's, got, he's got blood and stuff. just looks over and just kind of smiles at her. I'm like, <laughs> this movie is hysterical. He's just eating an old woman's ass and he invites her to join us. Like, yeah, come on, join me. They're just chowing away, eating away. I'm like, oh. So this, it's definitely a very gory horror film. But again, as I mentioned, it's darkly, wryly funny. Like, how could you not find that amusing seeing this man just face down, just eating away? And he starts talking about, hey, I've got a couple rules. You can stay with me. One of my rules is never eat an eater. Like that, we don't, we don't eat each other. I'm like, all right, fair enough. Like if you're hungry, don't eat me. Like I'm here to help you. Let's go eat at some other people. And he goes, the big thing is once you really get your senses going, you can smell the other eaters. Like I, I could tell, I knew who you were. That's why I invited you here. I bet she's kind of creeped out by this guy. She's like, I'm just going to bounce. It's like, all right. She goes out in a grocery store. She sees Timothee Chalamet. And she can tell because she's got the senses now working. It's like, this guy's a cannibal too. And Chalamet, as I mentioned, he's like super skinny. He's got like the red punk hairs from the 80s. And they kind of sense who they are, kind of sniff each other out, literally sniffing each other out. <laughs> he starts putting on a little kiss. Great scene. He starts playing the kisses. Live it up. He starts banging away. I'm like, oh, it just seems like a you know, young teenage romance. But no, but, but they're hungry. They're going to go feed. <laughs> he ends up finding this guy. They murder him, start eating together. I'm like, oh, my God. Jeez. What is going on in this film? And yet, because it's Luca Guadagnino, it's beautifully shot. It's in like the heartland. Like they're going towards Minnesota. There's road trips. And so in many ways, it feels like Romeo and Juliet. Doomed romance between two people. And yet you're mixing together so many different options. I found it so vibrant and so different and so original. And yes, so funny. And then there actually is a romance. And I'll be honest, the romantic part of it to me was this. When you fall in love, and you and Christine fell in love, and anybody falls in love, you say, hey, you get me. Like nobody else gets me, but you get me. And that's what this movie really is about. It's, hey, wherever I've been, I feel like an outcast. I feel like something different. I don't fit in. When I'm with you, I feel special. And that's why we're in love together. Now let's go eat some people. Let's, 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 let's go find <laughs> so some people So there's like dying. a note of like actual sentimental. And then it's yes. like, oh, wait, they're eating Let's go people. eat some people. Right. Yeah. There, there's a scene, again, she goes into finding her mother who's in a mental hospital. Let's just say things go sideways in a hurry because the mother's in the mental street jacket. But, but she needs to feed. Like she needs to eat. Um, again, I don't want to give you too much more except to say Rylance is incredible. He ends up coming back in the ending. And one of the lines of the year, we're going to do our top 10 films of the year at the end of the month. If I did a top 10 lines list, the line, I want you to eat me, has never taken on a different more significance than as this movie. I was howling. Also in a cameo is Michael Stuhlbarg. Michael Stuhlbarg is a really good actor. He's playing Jake. He shows up at one point when they're there in the woods. And he goes, hey, we got some beers. Got like a case of Budweiser. We just want to have some fun with you guys. They set up a campfire. It's him and the great director, David Gordon Green. I love George Washington, which Elvis Mitchell has spoken about. They're sitting there. Stuhlbarg goes like, I, again, with the senses. I can tell what you guys are. You're into it. And he starts telling, again, to bring it to drugs. This is like somebody who's like 
you know, a recreational marijuana user. And then they meet somebody who's like, no, 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 I got the good shit. I smoke weed every day. Like, you got to go to a different level. So he starts talking right. about cannibalism. He's like, you've never done it the way I've done it. Like, you guys are just kind of like trying it out. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, you got to go to the next level. And he got this creepy, leering look in his face. He's like, you got to go bones and all. And he's like, what? And he's like, yeah, you got to like eat the entire thing. And the girl's like, that's impossible. How can you eat like someone's femur bone? He's like, yeah. Oh, I've done he's it. like, oh, it's delicious. I've, I've done it. I can do it for you right now. It's bones and all. And the weirdest thing is his buddy, David Gordon Green, goes, he's not even an eater. He's like, what? He's like, you're hanging out with him? He's like, but you're not an eater? He's like, no. He goes, he saw me one time. He saw me in the woods just, just eating away. And he was like, oh, my God. And then I turned to him, and he was like, I, I won't say anything. I just want to keep watching. So I don't know what's more <laughs> disgusting. There's a cannibal or the buddy riding shotgun who's like, hey, I don't eat people, but I just love watching you do it. It's so voyeur. and gruesome. Yeah, voyeur. <laughs> I'm, I'm a voyeur cannibal. I'm not an actual cannibal. That is bones and all. Just just a vibrant film, something unlike anything else I will see this year. I kind of want to read the, read the book now. It's based upon the book. It's daring. Uh, it's original. I really enjoyed it. Where did you it. see bones it? Bones and all. I got the screener sent to me. It is currently in theaters, though. Okay. So maybe we can go find a Miami theater. I can try to convince Cody uh, this Friday <laughs> to go watch Bones and All. How about that cell if you're telling somebody, I got to go to this cannibal love story. Okay, I'm in. That sounds like a pretty fun Friday night. Two hours <laughs> of my time. Uh, definitely some shades of Badlands, a great Martin Sheen film. You know, it's, it's like, it's almost like Thelma and Louise. It's, it's lovers on the run, except they happen to be cannibals. Really cool movie. <laughs> now we'll get to the one I wasn't as crazy about. Here's a couple of reviews, by the way, of Bones and All. I want them to all be positive reviews. I think we found a couple that weren't as good. But this is LaRushka Ivan Zadeh, dreamily shot. It's also achingly hip. It hurts. But after two hours and ten minutes of slow burn meandering, I was hungry for more meat on these bones. Clever, but I don't agree. Thelma Adams loved this. This Romeo and Juliet about cannibals is creepy and seductive, fluid, gorgeously shot, and gracefully acted. Perfect blurb. And then Danny Lee of Financial Times, there are scenes that swim with woozy unease. Reagan analogies more subtle than you might think. I did not get the Reagan stuff, although it is in the 80s. I'll go look it up. Endless good-looking moments, but the chemistry at the heart of the matter is oddly bloodless. Again, good review. These, I mean, all these reviews, you can tell, they're excited. Like, okay, how can I use all these metaphors? Blood, cannibals, <laughs> eat up. It was so delicious, you want to eat up this entire film. Okay, great. Right. Now we get to Tar. As I mentioned, New York film critics, I believe, gave it Best Picture. Kate Blanchett won Best Actress. If you don't go to GoldDerby.com, she's the favorite to win. You better take some medicine to get through this film, man. So Two these films have nothing, real fast. Yeah. Tar and Till, they have nothing to do with each other. It's nothing just short. Just short, short, like short titles that start with T. That's and if it. you want pretentious, because you did correct Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, tar is not just tar, like T-A-R, like, you know, black oh. tar. It is tar, and the A is like the two dots above it, because it's, you know, mm. European. So it's yeah. tar. And it's, it's, pre it's pretty snooty. Set in the international world of Western classical music, the film centers on Lydia Tarr, widely considered one of the greatest living composers, conductors, and first ever female music director of a major German orchestra. Now that I see it, I don't believe it's the two dots. It is the... Uh, Accent grave. Anyways, regardless, there's an accent on the A. It's written and directed by Todd Field. He's a terrific director. He did In the, uh, in the Bedroom, which is a great movie with Sissy Spacek. He did uh, Little Children with Kate Winslet. Awesome movie. Jackie Earl Haley was nominated for an Oscar. So he hasn't made a movie in a long time. He's also an actor. He was in Eyes Wide Shut with Tom Cruise, Stanley Kubrick movie. He's the guy playing the piano, if you remember his face. So Todd Field hadn't made a movie in a long time. Because, you know, I'll make a movie about classical music. Now, in some ways... It's very interesting because I've never seen 
film ever about classical music. I learned a lot just about tempo and pacing. Kind of remind me in some ways of how Whiplash teaches you about jazz. Right to this day, people remember J.K. Simmons' Oscar-winning performance, Am I Rushing or Am I Dragging? The way he's just belittling and just, just crushing Miles Teller's spirit. So the first 50 minutes I thought was very interesting. She comes out, she's written a new book, Tar on Tar. She's being interviewed by like one of these Charlie Rose types. She's talking about her career. And again, for a guy like me who doesn't know anything about classical music, I find it very interesting. And you can tell from the gate when you're watching a movie that these people really know their subject matter well. Much like Ron McGill talking about Zoo Miami, these people definitely know that world of classical music. Like, all right, this is a world I don't know, but they're using terms and nomenclature and that whole vibe. I'm like, yeah, you know, I definitely appreciate a film that is teaching me something and going into it. But then you're waiting for the film to pick up any steam, and it's just so sluggish in its pacing. Now, I'm assuming this film is going to be about this woman who is at the top of her game, who ends up having a big nervous breakdown, psychological breakdown, maybe something like Black Swan, the great Aronofsky film, uh, for which Natalie Portman won an Oscar. And her life does unravel, but it's not in the way you think. And to me, it was just so uninvolving and so cold, I couldn't get behind the story. Instead, I was taken out of the story. Um, I won't spoil too much of it, just to say that it really involves Me Too politics. Uh, you know, she's in love with other women. She's using her power to get sexual favors from women, and it leads towards her uh, ultimate demise. But to me, I just, it's putting the slow and slow burn. And I appreciate Kate Blanchett's performance. I think she's a terrific actress. I think she'll get nominated for an Oscar and may actually win. But the movie itself is not something I can get behind. I can't in good conscience tell someone, go watch Tar. You're going to be pumped up for 155 minutes. Here's a couple of reviews. I'm giving it to Maple Leafs. Heather Hogan of Auto Straddle. It wants to splash around on the Me Too conversation without committing to getting wet. Field views identity politics is a zero-sum game that seeks to destroy true art. Dwight Brown. Blanchett is totally convincing as the troubled artist, yet cold, cold as the film. Good stuff, Cody. That's exactly what this movie's about. <laughs> and then Richard Roper, the Chicago Sun-Times, one of the all-time great critics, love him when he was with Ebert together. The expansive supporting ensemble is all great, and they all get their solo moments, but throughout the entirety of Tar, there's never any doubt Kate Blanchett is the one holding the baton. Again, these critics get clever. It's about a conductor, right, holding the baton. Everyone else is facing her, awaiting their cues. Undeniably, Excellent performance as a film, though. I cannot support it, despite the fact it's going to get lots of Oscar buzz, lots of Oscar nominations, and lots of talk from people who really love their movies. One more, and then we're going to get to our special guest. You're going to love Polly. Till. In 1955, after Emmett Till is murdered in a brutal lynching, his mother vows to expose the racism behind the attack while working to have those involved brought to justice. It is directed by Chinyanya Chukwu, who did Clemency, which, again, Ben Lyons alerted me to. He's like, you're going to love this movie. I think we loved it because uh, our boy Richard Schiff is in it. But it had a, an excellent lead performance, uh, and it's about a female prison warden. So I remember thinking, I'm like, okay, this, this director's clearly got some style to her and something different and something to say. And boy, has she found it in this movie, particularly in the performance by Danielle Deadweiler. I think if you ask most people, and maybe I don't know anything just because I'm Canadian, but if you ask them, what do you know about Emmett Till? They'd say, okay, um, civil rights, black kid, lynched, you know, horrible, horrible moment. That's, that kind of sticks out to me. I'm like, yeah. And so this film kind of seeks to do a little bit more and say, okay, who was Emmett Till? What was his relationship about with this mother? What exactly did that instant do in terms of inspiring the civil rights movement? And I think it's an excellent film. I really enjoyed it. It's co-written by Chinyanye, along with Keith Beauchamp and Michael Riley. But the key really is Danielle Deadweiler. Um, when you're watching a movie like this, you know at some point, like, what's going to happen? Like, how do they do the death scene? Like, what's her reaction going to be? And I thought they made a lot of strong artistic choices, even among the obvious. Like, you know when Emmett Till, who's from Chicago, wants to go visit his cousins in Mississippi, 
you know, something bad's going to happen. Um, but the way that they show that murder, I didn't know the, the whole details behind it. I really didn't. He uh, was, was in a store, white shopkeeper. She alleges he was rude to her, disrespectful. Him and his cousins try to bounce. Later that night, they come find him, take him out, and commit this horrible, horrible atrocity. But that, that incident, in many ways, seemed to galvanize the civil rights movement. And Medgar Evers, the civil rights activist, ended up reaching out to Emmett Till's mom, Mammy, and saying, listen, you've got to help us with the movement. And as she says, I don't want to help the movement. I'm trying to help find my son. Like, I'll, we'll get to that afterwards. And the scene where she actually gets told that her son has been lynched, beautiful filmmaking. They, they do the classic, you know, uh, Hitchcock vertigo or Scorsese Goodfellas where you're zooming in and pulling out at the same time. Uh, it was really well rendered because I thought, okay, is she just going to go for broke here and start screaming with abandon like Pacino at the end of Godfather 3? Or is it more of a subtle movement? And I thought they found a delicate balance. How can you possibly photograph a woman finding out her son, her teenage son has been murdered and lynched? But I thought that scene was <clears throat> particularly powerful. And then her decision to then go and say, I want to go, go see this case. I want to go fight for my son's justice and make sure that those killers end up being put in prison. I don't think I'm surprising anybody by saying those people were not put to justice. This is Mississippi <laughs> in 1955. Those guys were not going to be facing any sort of crime for lynching a young black kid. But that murder, as I said, ended up galvanizing people, ended up really bringing them to action, really stirring them and realizing just how atrocious these actions were and the racism that still exists in those efforts of the Deep South. Good to see the supporting cast. Whoopi Goldberg, haven't seen her in a movie in years, right? The View. She shows up. She's playing Mammy's mother, so the grandmother of uh, Emmett Till, also produced. I'm sure she put some financial muscle behind this movie. Frankie Faison on the movie as well. But again, it's Daniel Deadweiler's performance. Um, she really shows the depth of a love that a mother and a son can have. As I mentioned, there's a lot of talk about Kate Blanchett winning an Oscar for Tar. And it's up to me. Right now, the frontrunner for the Best Actress Oscar should be Danielle Deadweiler. Absolutely commanding, star-making performance in Till. Here's a couple blurbs for you. Adam Mullins Khatib of Chicago Reader. Ultimately and unfortunately, Till is a film that covers important events, but doesn't quite feel like it adds enough to the story to be an important film. I disagree. Kay Austin Collins of Rolling Stone. An impassioned melodrama on the surface, unafraid of facing tragedy head-on and allowing ample space for grief, anger, and fear but which is also a wise movie about the complicatedly political world Mamie Till finds herself in. Absolutely, it was a political world, and it remains so now. And lastly, we save the best blurb for last. It's from Ty Burr of Ty Burr's Watchlist. I pay five bucks a month just to read Ty Burr's reviews. Till <laughs> is a quintessential good-for-you movie, but it's also a good movie, rich with detail and beautifully directed. And so to recap, five new movies, which took us a half an hour. Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery, I'm giving that... Two and a half Maple Leafs. Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, I'm giving it two and a half Maple Leafs. Bones and all, four Maple Leafs. Tar, two Maple Leafs. And Till, three, maybe it's even three and a half Maple Leafs. Very, very good film. And now it's time for our special guest. You're going to love Polly. Uh, a little bit of a backstory again. This is about a woman, Polly Adler, Jewish immigrant, comes to New York, ends up running the first ever whorehouse in New York City, made a lot of money. As uh, Debbie told me after, she goes, oh, she was definitely making in the millions. Now, she was playing out bribes to cops left and right. It wasn't even one central location, but she'd have a place let her 57th and 6th. Cops would raid it, bring her and the women down there, book them. She'd pay them off, pay the charge. Boom, let's go find a different place, 83rd and 6th. Let's go whore it up there. But anybody who was rich and famous, who was a horny guy, was going to this place at that time. The book was recommended to me, and I love the book, and I think you should all check it out. And first off, listen to the interview and realize just how salacious this book really is.
This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, it's a real pleasure to bring in Debbie Applegate, Pulitzer Prize winner who wrote this fantastic book called Mad in the Life of Polly Adler. It was recommended to me by my dear friend Chris Bartens. He says, you're going to love this book. It's really entertaining. It's funny. It's juicy. It's all of that. And it really is a compelling story about this feminist. Polly Adler really was a hero for her times. And uh, honestly, Debbie, phenomenal job of the book. Thanks so much for giving us a few minutes. Oh, couldn't be more thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to read some stuff here, then you just go ahead and uh, give some more color to it. This is interesting here. Johns were simpler to master. Polly was learning what to notice, the subtle signs of what pleased a customer. Men sought out prostitutes for more than sexual relief, she soon realized. They came to assuage loneliness or massage their egos for relaxation, male camaraderie, or compensation for life's disappointments, for the taste of power, or for the relief of letting down their public defenses with someone who wouldn't judge them. Men like flattery, she concluded. They're vain and egotistical. Women can hold them if they just pretend. I want to add, that was a quote. I did not say that. That was not my opinion. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue with the expert, but that was Polly saying that. Uh, you know, it's funny because when I started this project, I had been, I had been writing about 19th century Calvinist ministers. They had a little sex scandal, but it was not the same thing. They wanted to be good. Nobody in this book wants to be good, at least for a little while. And uh, so I was trying to rejigger my head, getting my head around the Calvinist to the underworld and I, I was looking at prostitution well there is according at least one scholar estimates there are over a billion pages written about prostitution and prostitutes covering every angle you could possibly imagine there is almost nothing written about uh johns uh to use the phrase that for men who go uh to prostitutes i mean nothing man uh, and so uh, a little i mean but uh, it turns out uh male researchers do not enjoy that subject quite as much uh, so I really had to think about it and I, I kept thinking you know why the hell would you get married if you want to run around and if you want to run around and if you and if you want to be married why run around I mean what what are you doing and then I realized midway through this book people just want to have 
their cake and eat it too. That's not, a, I didn't have to be a genius to figure that out. I didn't have to read so much about it. And so then if people want their cake, what is their cake? And it turns out, of course, women can provide all kinds of things. And as soon as it broke open to me, like, oh, right, it's just that. It's whatever anyone needs. That's the joy of having a prostitute. They're not themselves. They're not a person. They are a service provider who's going to give you whatever you want. And the better they are at figuring out what you want and giving it to you while not making you notice that you're paying for it, the better they do. <laughs> it's fascinating psychology to it. Start dirty and we're going. <laughs> well, here's the thing. The, the amount of people, I like my friend Chris Martens said to me, because listen, there's a lot of big names in here. Walter Winchell regularly popped into Polly's place in his late night prowls. Walter was, in the words of one colleague, a sexual athlete, a stud, a man for all female seasons. As he made his rounds, he kept up a coarse commentary in his high-pitched, mile-a-minute patter about women's bodies, appetites, and proclivities, even the way they smelled. Friends like to joke he would die of a terminal orgasm. Yeah, well, for one thing, you're a little young to be known who Walter Winchell is. Uh, that, that is uh, that is the problem. I love Stanley Tucci. I love Stanley you Tucci know, played I, in the movie. I That's thought, how I know him, yeah. I thought at least I could. Yes, Stanley Tucci. That was a great movie, actually. Yeah. And Walter Winchell's a fascinating character. He's like the, the Herbert Hoover, or not the Herbert, but the J. Edgar Hoover of the journalism world. Uh, blackmail, uh, secret investigations, total hypocrisy, you name it. And they were he and Hoover were good friends, so it fits. Uh, you know, the real thing is, I thought the problem with writing a book uh, that is like almost a name dropping book, because I got Desi Arnaz, I got uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, that yes. one was a surprise to me. I yes. got Milton Berle. Well, I thought I could at least take, uh, you know, uh, figure that people would know who Desi Arnaz was and Milton Berle might be. But even that, you know, time moves on. Uh, so, so part of the reason why the book is a little long is I had to say who these people are and why would you care? Yeah. And to your point, FDR. So this is this was, I agree with you, I was stunned. Uh, Roosevelt's physician was asked about whether the president was still potent. Don't forget, his only his legs are paralyzed, explained the doctor. How does he do it? She asked with some naivete. The French way, the doctor replied. That is through fellatio, a specialty that was rarely practiced among women who were not prostitutes in those days. As for moral objections, Roosevelt was known to enjoy the company of women who were not his wife and indulged in at least one extramarital sexual affair with Eleanor Roosevelt's social secretary. I had well, no idea about yeah. this. He liked his cake in a very specific way. Uh, and that, you know, that, well, there were two, I mean, one thing is uh, being a biographer is like being a peeping Tom. You are going through people's drawers, their, their email. Your, if they had text messages, I would have been been like trying to break into their phones and I and that is I'm sorry I'm, I, that, that is, it's the job description uh, yeah. but and you only can do this if you are a nosy person uh, but you have to be empathetic too and so yeah. so one of the things is uh, sorry I don't know what you, who your audience is and if they're going to be offended but you know World War One changed a lot of things uh, taught people to smoke cigarettes uh, taught people to play dice because you could do that in the barracks and it taught people to like oral sex and uh, uh, so they bring all these habits home uh, that American women are not yet prepared to uh, supply. So prostitutes, you would talk about being a French bride or a half and half girl, if you will, or French. Do, do, are, you, know, do you know the French way? Um, so that was learned a lot more about that than I ever thought I would. Uh, and but then the, the 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 FDR thing I had heard I knew she catered to Polly Adler catered to a lot of press a lot of uh, uh, government people a lot 
lot of politicians, judges, uh, cops, big in the world of the police. Um, but I had never heard a rumor about Roosevelt until I was talking to an elderly man. He was in his 80s and he had known Polly when she was near the end of her life. And he was in his 20s and he was driving her somewhere. And she said she'd been brooding, brooding, brooding and had been obviously something was on her mind. And uh, she said, hey, out of the blue, would you invite, uh, would you meet, introduce me to your mother? And he says, well, sure, why wouldn't I introduce your mother? She says, well, you know, my own mother won't have me at the holiday dinner table. I find it interesting since she'll take my money but she won't have me at the table. Uh, and then she said, she just paused again, paused again. And then she said, you know, I knew President Roosevelt. And he said, was, I said, how, how, like what? He said, I had no idea. He said, she sounded very matter of factly. He said, she sounded like, you know, she already had cancer. She had just been humiliated by having her book turned down by every publisher in New York. Her own mother, you know, is being a hypocrite. I think he said it sounded like she just wanted to say, I knew some of the most important people in the world, and yet still people treat me like shit because of this double standard that, oh, it's fine for a president or a politician or a captain of industry to do this. It's not fine for me to provide this. You mentioned Milton Berle. There's a tremendous anecdote I have to read. So. You're a fan of Kirby enthusiasm. Larry David has made jokes about Milton Berle, the uh, you know myth and stereotype, perhaps, or the truth. And here it is: Milton Berle endorsed this heartily, claiming Polly hired only high-class broads. The composer agreed, confessing to Faye he had not been having success with women because, in Wilder's own words, they tell me my penis is too small. The comedian assured him that Polly had trained her girls to be nothing but complimentary. My problem is just the reverse. Burl chimed in. When I leave a woman's bed, she always complains she feels like she's just given birth to a baby. And I. It is a question I get at very nice, uh, respectable audiences at book events. Hey, uh, question, was that, is it true uh, that uh, Milton was as large as uh, his reputation in the comedy world claims? And uh, listen, it's not actually, I don't deal with that controversy in the book directly, but I will say this. In my peeping Tom uh, days, I have clearly figured, no, I'm pretty sure that's true. Like there is, there's really nothing to say not true. Everything I have read. Uh, and, it, you know, actually, I, anytime I had Milton Berle talking about Polly, I put it in, even though you can't always trust him. He's, he likes to exaggerate. He's, he's a funny man, uh, obviously, even to this day. Uh, but he does tell one of my favorite stories, which is he's sitting there. Polly was a great cook, always had great food, top shelf booze you could stop by 24 hours a day so he would stop by hang out have dinner he's sitting there with the actor uh um julius garfinkel is his name uh, uh john garfield uh, he changed his name from garfinkel to garfield uh, and they're sitting there and they says uh, melton says you know i'm starting to feel a little horny Sorry, again. Uh, and uh, and uh, Garfield says, you know, me, surprise with me too. And she says, well, well, Polly, why don't you send us a couple of your $100 girls? We'll go back to our respective abodes and they will arrive. So Polly had many, many young women who worked for her temporarily. She had professionals who were full-timers, but she had a lot of women who were trying to break into acting or singing or dancing who would wait work for her on the sly until they got their big break. And you never knew. People like uh, Dorothy L'Amour, the, the, the sarong girl, the sweet girl from the Bob Hope and Bing Crosby movies. So uh, Melvin goes back to his apartment. He, opened, he was waiting, the day, knock, knock, knock on the door. He opens the door. It's Carol, the girl he's dating currently. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't think it I don't think it got in the way. The question only is, did he pay her or did he not pay her? Uh, he does not uh, deal with that uh, particular question. So. Oh, Debbie Applegate is a raconteur's dream right now. Fantastic book, madam, and she's bringing it right now. Of course, you should all read the book, The Life of Polly Adler. What's really fascinating to me is also the cops. So let's get into how dirty these cops are. So lesbianism was increasingly common as Manhattan's reputation for sexual freedom flowered. Together, they created a new vogue among the jaded vice cops for circuses. That's a group of women performing oral sex on each other, and it's more orderly variant, the daisy chain. More than one beleaguered madam was asked to organize a circus for a party of cops, only to end the evening in the back of a paddy wagon as soon as the boys finished their fun. Early in the morning of May 24th, 1928, Polly got a call from a cop whose palm I'd oiled so often it was a wonder the phone didn't slip right out of his hand. These guys are real scum here, Debbie. They're doing all this yeah. stuff and then they're taking them to prison. I'll say you got an eye for the hot spots of the book. Um, not sharing <laughs> this interview with my mother. Um, uh, this, uh, uh, you know, I, okay, so when I was finishing the book, it was exactly as 2020 when, uh, when you know, uh, Black Lives Matter is, uh, is coming up in the riots and the, the recognition of how little control we as citizens have over the police departments. And there was much debate over, you know, good, bad, bad apples, good, what, what, what's going on with these police departments? And I got to say, I have to come down on, boy, at least in the vice departments and the vice squads, even to this day, you mix with criminals all the time. That's your job is to know criminals. And it is and there's almost no oversight to this day over police departments. It is very hard to resist the kind of temptation. They put that kind of money in front of you, that kind of because basically they decide, are we going to license you to deal? Are you going to license you to have a brothel? And sometimes they do. That's the equivalent. That's how the underworld will treat it, like a licensing fee that you pay to the local cops. I mean, it doesn't mean every cop is dirty, but it sure is a system that is willing to overlook a lot of dirt. A hundred percent. I was like, the amount of times I'm like, how could Polly make any money between the people that she had to pay off, the cops all the time, you're moving different places. She was never in one spot at one time. It felt like she was always moving around. And then you get to some really dark stuff here. I mean, this was powerful when I read this. A whorehouse is the only place I can cry without being ashamed, one regular explained. Many of the men seemed irreparably shattered. Like the customer just kept muttering over and over, I used to control Wall Street. Now I don't know how I'm going to pay next month's rent. One gentleman, or so she'd always thought, arrived at the house and requested a particular girl, and then proceeded to practice the most vile, cruel, and inhuman acts until the girl was a physical wreck. Polly recalled with a shudder, the following morning the man went to his office and shot himself. Yeah, so that passage you're reading is right after the crash in 1929 when Wall Street just, you know, goes completely flat. And everybody, I mean, we think we get, you know, stock market bubbles. It was nothing like the 1920s where almost everybody had a little money in the market and and they were borrowing money on margin and people are just destroyed. So Polly thought she was going to be screwed and she did lose a lot of money herself. But uh, it turned out her business was as good as it ever been. As she says, some people who had been like, oh, every once in a while they would come by became sex maniacs. Others who had spent every night there having sex now just did all they wanted to do was drink. And she made a lot of money from her bar. She made as, almost as much money marking up booze uh, as she did on the bedrooms. Uh, and so she found, strangely, the depression was great for a whorehouse because that's where people wanted to go to be ashamed or to get away from their problems, to blot out reality.
Yeah, and, and there's just some strange people here, too. I mean, let's be honest. This one guy, <laughs> Boy Amber, Pretty Boy Amber, got the nickname the way, same way a bald man is called Curly, <laughs> which is hilarious, by the way. Used to get his lunatic kicks by hanging the naked girls out of the window, swaying them back and forth by their ankles before he pulled them back in. John O'Hara used Amber's habit of hanging naked party girls out of skyscraper windows as fodder for Butterfield 8. That can't be true. Oh, oh come now. Really, sir? So, I don't know what, what, I don't know what a little sweet world you live in you don't do that sort of thing your friends uh no but the fact is you know one of those people would say oh did you like dutch schultz did you like lucky luciano sort of some of them i did but only relative because they're also the book is filled with sociopaths gangsters were she was considered uh the female al capone as one newspaper but i think that's an exaggeration she did not said but she was clearly the only woman who was recognized as almost an equal in the national crime syndicate and you know when people are like what do you think i was like well i liked some of the sociopaths better than others <laughs> i like frank costello better than dutch schultz although dutch was a good friend of hers I liked, uh, you know, Meyer Lansky, better, but but uh, that pretty Amber, nobody liked him. And he, in fact, died uh, by being tied up in a sack in a, a method that he invented. So with a, his, his tongue cut off and I think it was his tongue, a little bit unclear what shoved into his mouth. So, you know, uh, he got what was coming to him, I guess. The, the Dutch salt package is sensational because you're right. I, I remember Dustin Hoffman playing him in the movie, right. and I've always loved Meyer Lansky because I'm like he's like the the gentle gangster, like did, yeah. died of a natural death, didn't didn't right. didn't go to prison, didn't get gunned down, did tax evasion. No, like Meyer Lansky, good guy, just happened to be a mobster, good Jewish man, wanted to go to Israel one day, and of course uh, played <laughs> impeccably by, uh, uh, of course uh, in in the movie Godfather Two, uh, Hyman Roth, Lee Strasberg playing him. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, one other section here. Whorehouses always draw twisted people who are unable to satisfy their desires normally. But now it got so that I began to think of a patron who wanted the simple, old-fashioned methods as a truck driver. To your point about what you're now developing. Now, this was awfully crazy. Robert Benchley. This is a guy who died a sudden painful death from a cerebral hemorrhage attributed to cirrhosis of the liver, likely exacerbated by long, dormant syphilis. For his myriad friends, he was known as the Pied Piper, the era of wonderful nonsense. But his life could be read as a cautionary tale. He had a theory that everyone tends to become the type of person he hates most. And what he'd become was a hopeless alcoholic, broken in health, no longer able to pursue the writing that made him proud. This isn't necessarily attributed to the book, but I'm just curious, your thought on that comic, because I thought that was rather profound. Everyone tends to become the type of person he hates most. Yeah. I thought a lot about that. I hope it's not true. <laughs> I, I thought, I really thought, well, what the hell is that going to be? I have some suspicion that it's a little bit coming true in my life. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think he was bit. The real thing is, man, the prohibition. Prohibition was actually in some ways good for drinking in, in the United States. We definitely drink less than we did before prohibition as a whole. Yeah. But, you know, but for those who are like, screw you, we're going to and we're going to throw ourselves into speakeasy culture, nightclub culture. That whole generation of New Yorkers who became they became such heavy drinkers, such heavy smokers. Drug use was crazy. The amount of cocaine in this book was very surprising to me. And the amount of just sexually transmitted disease. Is that, that that generation, all those guys who were so funny and who helped make popular culture of the 20th century, most of them, it's the, they die young and it's the liver, it's the lungs, it's the heart, or it, it's undiagnosed syphilis. There's, we live in an age of miracles. Thank God for penicillin. That's all I can say. <laughs> that is my strongest feeling coming out of this book. Thank God for penicillin. <laughs> 
All right, one more quote here. Sex workers in general, Paul in particular, are dealers in illusion. The illusions of intimate connections between strangers, of desires without limits or consequences, of spontaneous ecstasy on demand, and whatever else the human id can dream of. Polly's mastery of this mysterious art was the source of her significance and contributed in no small measure to the glorious legend of the Jazz Age. By the way, that's outstanding writing, and I think really, again, impactful when you look about her life. Thank you. You know, it's funny because, of course, uh, the book that I felt like I was in conversation, which was The Great Gatsby, right? The great novel of the Jazz Age, maybe one of the greatest novels in American history. Uh, And Gatsby is like Polly. He uses parties. He uses his ability to throw a a really wild, elegant, uh, luxurious parties for all kinds of people as a way to climb up the social ladder, despite being a criminal. But uh, so I was like, but he's famous. Her all of all of uh, you know. We know who Lucky Luciano is. We know who Meyer Lansky is. We don't know who Polly Adler is, even though she's as ballsy uh, and as bold and as criminally brilliant as any of them. And her legend was huge. Why don't we remember? We don't remember because we don't like to talk about sex, and we. Didn't Definitely don't like to talk about sex and money, uh, even though we know they have always gone together throughout history. And if there's one thing I definitely thought by the end is, I don't know what you do about prostitution. There's good parts about it, I suppose you could say. There's bad part. There's plenty of bad. It's not something you want your daughter to do. On the other hand, it is some for some people a free will choice. The real thing is we're never, I think we should not stigmatize people who use money, sexuality to get money. I hate when people are rude about strippers. I hate when people are rude about, you know, hooters. I just, I find that gross. You're there. You, if you don't like it, then you have you. and guess by the way, what they say about you when you leave the strip club. So sorry, I didn't mean to end on a down note in case some of your people are. One more question. This one I had to ask you. This one, I I honestly, I'm like, I I can't even picture this. She entertained one elderly man who asked to have one of the girls link her thumbs together and walk about the room as he called out Pretty Peacock. What does that even mean? I don't understand. That's all. All I wanted was more of that. I I never had enough stories like that. And the problem is, you know, these are the kind of stories that do not get written down. They are generally the kind of, that was like in some Somebody's private diary saying, I spent the night at Polly's. This is what we talked about. She, she, he said, she's such a businesswoman. One of the things that got them on that subject was one of the guests was talking about Proust, the writer, the French writer Proust, Marcel Proust, and how supposedly he liked having little white mice crawl all over him as a sexual thing. And her first response was, huh, I wonder where she got a supply of regular mice. Uh, for him. Like, you know, she's very practical. Uh, you got to, you know. Very, it, you can you can learn a lot from this book on how to run oh. a business. <laughs> There's no question about it. It is an outstanding book, Madam: The Life of Polly Adler, who was, in her own way, I think, courageous and fearless, and a feminist, and somebody who was incredibly successful. You know, immigrant Jew comes to this country and really made a lot of herself. And as you said, maybe it's not to everyone's taste and proclivities, but she was certainly successful and certainly satisfied a lot of men along the way. Her name is Debbie Applegate. Uh, she is as sensational as the book. This was awesome. I can't think. Thank you enough. Thanks, Adler. Thanks for having me. Hope to come back sometime soon. All right. Thanks once again to uh, to Debbie. What did you think she thought of the interview? As you know, I always want the authors to enjoy the interview. What do you think? What do you think she I thought? Think so that- she hung up. 
I think at the at the start she was like, "Whoa, this guy is getting all the good stuff." But then she got into it. She's like, "This guy read the book. She appreciated that." I feel like I think that was definitely a pleasurable experience for her. Now, now I'm doing the eye classic ever boogie nights. Pleasurable experience. <laughs> you know, poor choice of words by me. She enjoyed the interview. Pleasurable experience. <laughs> Anyways, good stuff by her. It's a great book. Thanks to all of you for listening. Once again, I will see all of you in Miami, just like I'll see my buddy Cody and be reunited with the entire Dan Levitar show. It's going to be awesome. Next week, Darren Aronofsky's film, Brendan Fraser. He's going to definitely get an Oscar nomination. He might even win an Oscar for The Whale, plus Puss in Boots. Yes, Shrek sequel of the new film Living. All that more coming up next week in Cinephile. Please go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review, and I'll see you at the movies. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.